Adam's child dies every night. It's sad. I mean, he's, it's like he's watched our baby uh, in grave peril. Yes. You know, suffocate and, and die over and over and over again from day one, which is really hard <laughs> and yeah. terrifying. Yeah, I mean, he would wake, I would wake up to him sitting straight up in bed, eyes open, with this bewildered look on his face, cradling the pillow. And then he would stare blankly at me and say, where is the baby? Like most first-time parents, Adam and Juliana were really excited but very nervous to have their first baby. The hospital experience turned out to be an ordeal, and Adam said that watching Jules give birth was a lot like watching William Wallace tortured to death at the end of Braveheart. Sorry if that's a spoiler. Except instead of quashing the Scottish Rebellion, Adam ended up with a son. The baby was born healthy. Adam and Jules were relieved, but they were also exhausted. They came home wiped out, but ready to start sleeping in shifts. That's when the real ordeal for Adam began. It's it's eerie and creepy. It's like, you know, nobody's home. There's like a blankness to his eyes, and, and he's not seeing, even though he's, his eyes are open. Adam suffers from somnambulism. That's the clinical term for sleepwalking. It's part of a family of sleep disorders known as parasomnias. There wasn't a different world that I was in where there was things that lined up and things that didn't. I was awake, my eyes were open. I was looking at the bed, searching through the pillows, looking for the baby and not able to find him, and kind of panicking. Adam's particular parasomnia involves a perceived threat to the life of his child. This occurs every night and has every night since his child was born. If David Lynch and Christopher Nolan decided to collaborate on a project, and instead of making a movie, they decided to make someone's life, I think it would be Adam's life. So, you know, night after night, I was uh, tearing up the, you know, the, the bed sheets, searching, um, you know, in the, in the middle of the night in these 10-minute sleep sessions. I would say, he's the baby's safe, he's in the cradle. And he would look at the cradle and see the baby and not believe me, it's still keep fishing through the pillow and what, you I, know. Yeah, I, the, that, that actually happened many times because most of the times when, when I was doing this, I would wake you up and you'd say, soothe me, like, no, there's the baby, he's okay, he's in the cradle, he's not in the pillow. Um, I, would, I would see the baby, but like, the reality of the matter was that, yes, he's there, but he's also, I mean, I know that he's in the, in the sheets, he's in the bed. So like, for that brief moment, there is like a strange reality where, well, there, there's a baby, he's in both places. Yeah, dream what's, logic permits him to be in yeah, both places. What's yeah. the problem with that? He's in both places. He seems to be okay over there, but he's dying over here. You're listening to Against Type, the podcast about crossing the borders of intuition and the places beyond. Our pilot episode, I'm not crazy, I'm just sleeping. For some reason, I never, like, snapped out of it. Like, I never felt comfortable. Like, I could see the baby was there. I wrapped my head around the reality the baby is only in one place. Okay, I guess I can accept that, but I don't quite feel comfortable laying my head back down on the pillow because I might crush him. So when you, when you quote unquote snap out of it, it was more of like a gradient of snapping out of it. It wasn't, it was just, it was still like a menacing feeling. It wasn't like you said, oh, I'm, this is silly. I'm awake. He doesn't snap out of it. No. 
Adam and Jules explain that he doesn't snap out of it, per se. He slowly comes awake, it's more of a gradient. But the entire time his eyes are open. He's able to navigate his environment, talk, and listen, but he's frantic. This is very unusual if you're not familiar with the world of sleepwalking, but if you are, it's actually not so uncommon. No, I would, I would slowly warm up to the idea that I can probably go back to bed without, you know, causing anyone harm. But I'm not quite, I don't quite feel certain of it. Like if you saw someone drowning and you couldn't see them anymore, do you dive into the water to look for them or do you say, well, I don't see them anymore, it's probably okay. It's like, no, you think that they're gone now, right? They drowned. One, I remember one time uh, she told me that I thought she was the baby because I had found the baby and it was her face. <laughs> I mean, that's... The baby's face was bigger than normal, but I'd, I had successfully found the baby. I just needed to put him in the cradle, but it was actually my wife. Adam isn't particularly anxious or particularly vigilant. He says that he often forgets to do important things. He doesn't set himself reminders. Sometimes he doesn't lock his door. He doesn't own a gun. He does drive the speed limit. In other words, he's not the sort of person who seems like they're waiting for the other shoe to drop all the time. That's why it's so unusual that this happened. I wondered, when Adam's looking frantically through the bedsheets for his dying child, is that person Adam? There seems to be really very little to no relation between the type of behaviors people will do during their episodes and their personality during wakefulness. You knew it was coming. We speculate for a while, but eventually in any episode, we just conjure an expert. My name is Antonio Zadra. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Montreal and a researcher at the Center for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine at the Hôpital du Sacré-Cœur of Montreal. In pop culture, we see a lot of depictions of sleepwalking, and I'm sure that, as in so many venues, most of those are way off of the actual scientific reality. Uh, so first of all, if you Google almost any image of, for sleepwalking, uh, you'll see someone with the, his or her arms outstretched before them. Uh, sleepwalkers don't move that way. Uh, this is probably something that arose uh, historically because it was believed that sleepwalkers were acting out maybe some kind of dream, uh, that they were delusional, but somehow cut off from their physical environment. And probably having your hands in front of you was a way of avoiding uh, running into objects. However, uh, sleepwalkers uh, during their episodes have their eyes open, not closed, uh, don't have their arms in front of them. Uh, they are able to perceive to varying degrees their environment uh, around them. They might misperceive some elements in their environment. So a little red dot from uh, a DVD player, for instance, might become a laser pointer from a sharpshooter. Um, a poster that you have up in the wall went during an episode out of darkness, you might view as a hole in the wall through which a gas is uh, coming into the room. So you might misperceive things, but you can still get up uh, navigate through your environment, that is, uh, go down the stairs, go into the kitchen, uh, you won't necessarily uh, trip over things. So perceptually, uh, sleepwalkers are able 
to see what is going on around them. Like I said, sometimes they misperceive things. And although what motivates their behaviors might make no sense once you hear about it when the person is awake, it does make sense to the sleepwalker while they are having their episode. One example, for instance, that I can give you uh, is someone who lived on a third floor apartment here in Montreal. And during one of his episodes, uh, bolts out of bed, grabs his bed and his, uh, his girlfriend was still sleeping in it and starts moving the bed away from the wall. Then starts moving the dresser away from the wall. And when his uh, girlfriend, uh, understandably annoyed by all this, asks him what the hell he's doing, he explains to her that a train is coming and they're about to get hit by the train. And so that he needs to move everything away from the wall. And when his girlfriend tried to tell him, look, we're on a third floor apartment. We live in downtown Montreal. There's no trains that come into our buildings and so on. That had zero impact. Uh, but at one point after turning on the light, she asked her boyfriend um, to show her the train tracks running through uh, their bedroom along the wall where the train would come. And it's only when he got down on his hands and knees and, and placed his hands over the, the floor and noticed there were no train tracks that then he started to consider the idea that, yeah, maybe there is no train coming. So this is all quite different from how sleepwalking is typically uh, presented in uh, media or movies, if you want. Is it fair to say that if you can force someone to participate in the logic of that exploration that that may snap them out of it more readily? Uh, it, it would definitely, I think it's a fair assessment. Again, uh, these things tend to vary person uh, to person and also within the same individual from one episode to another. Because uh, some people might have on occasion some very agitated episodes of which it is very hard to reason with them or to get them to snap out of it. Uh, or they might, might be much more malleable uh, in others. That being said, I think you're absolutely right that... Um, uh, trying to get into their frame of mind and working within that is a much more constructive approach than anything confrontational. And and actually um, not taking seriously the concern of the sleepwalker while they are in their episode uh, or belittling it or um, making fun of them uh, can also augment their agitation uh, because they really think that they or someone around them uh, is in grave danger or about to die often. Uh, and, and so for them, there is really a very pressing need to act. Uh, and it's not just also uh, something that's going through their minds, but they're also physically agitated. Uh, their respiration tends to be regular. Their heartbeat is accelerated. And so these people are really um, in a situation of apparent stress uh, during these um, uh, during these episodes. It sounds to me like, again, as a layperson, everyone from a, a terrorist to uh, simply a drunk person, it, it's it's like if you aren't um, sort of dialing into their reality and encountering them on the same wavelength, you're only going to find more consternation, right? Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. And there's, there's many misconceptions also about uh, sleepwalkers, even about the extent of um, behaviors they can do. I didn't mention this during the interview with Dr. Zadra for obvious reasons, but one of my lifelong ambitions is to be a sort of sorcerer warlord. So the idea that I could have an army of thralls who are essentially mindless husks but are still capable of really complex mechanical actions like scaling a wall or operating a catapult is really exciting to me. I want to know just how complex these actions could get.
Uh, they can be very complex. Uh, again, driving an automobile, for instance, it's a very complicated uh, activity. And you got to think that you also have to, uh, at some point, remember to pick up your keys where you left them. You got to <laughs> get to your car. You got to get inside. Sure. You got to start it. You got to maybe back out of the driveway. Uh, we have people who um, have cooked during episodes. Uh, wow. Now, not, not recipes that you'd want to eat, mind you. <laughs> Uh, but still, we will fill a pot with water and then put in some relish and uh, throw in some pasta and uh, take out some peanut butter and you know. And, uh, and now there's just some dangers about this because they might leave the room and leave the, the water boiling or what have you. Then you have um, people, for instance, we've had uh, musicians who during an episode will play their musical instrument. Wow. not unusual for them to leave their household and so they navigate very well uh, up and down the stairs opening the doors walk outside um, so again their eyes are open and they can see things uh, even though how they are explaining to themselves what they are seeing and why they're there might not make much sense in these rare cases where for instance they have driven their automobile they've almost invariably driven it along the same route that they typically take every day uh, often to go to work, for instance. So, the uh, the if you think about people drive every day the same route, often can do it if you, for lack of a better term, on automatic pilot. Uh, even when you get to work, if someone asks you when you were at this and this intersection, was the light green? Uh, was the light red? Uh, were you in the middle lane, the right lane? Uh, you might not remember because your your brain was sort of doing other things, and you're sort of doing this on auto automatic pilot. And so sleepwalkers, since they are quite able to perceive their environment, especially when it's a known environment, um, it, it's not inconceivable for them to be able to drive along a route um, that is well known to them. Um, and now people often ask, how is it possible to do something like that um, if you are asleep? As Dr. Zadra explained the complexities and nuances of sleepwalking, it started to sound a lot more like something I like to call being awake. You might start to wonder, are these people actually asleep or are they indeed awake? Well, wondering that shows just how little you know about sleepwalking. Take it away, Dr. Z. Asking the question, are they asleep or are they awake, um, is a false question because when we look at their brain waves during episodes, what we see is that parts of the brains are actually uh, very much still in deep sleep. Uh, we see these, these specific waves, these delta waves, which are these high amplitude waves that you only see in a brain, human brain that is immersed in deep sleep. However, there are other areas of the brain which show activity of wakefulness. And so the, the person is really stuck in a gray zone with some areas which are still uh, asleep and others which are awake. And it's this juxtaposition of these two states of wakefulness and deep sleep that gives rise to this complex phenomena uh, and a very unusual one, uh, which is sleepwalking. I'm curious as to how many people who exhibit these more active parasomnias, do their personality traits themselves actually change in some way? I mean, do you get people who normally are benign, compassionate, empathetic people doing psychotic seeming things? I mean, how much legitimate fear is there that somebody you know who's a sleepwalker will actually do something violent if they're not an inherently violent person? Uh, there seems to be uh, no relation really between uh, waking state personality and the type of 
actions people will do. Uh, there have been cases of voluntary homicide during somnambulism. Uh, there's a famous case here in Canada uh, called the Ken Parks case. Kenneth James Parks, uh, age 24, six foot five inches tall, 280 pounds. This is a recording of Carlos H. Schenk, a sleep pathologist, clinician, and author talking about the Kenneth Parks case at the World Science Festival in 2011. On the night of May 24th, 1987, he was sitting in front of his TV in the living room, had fallen asleep. He woke up, put on his shoes, grabbed the set of car keys, left the house, leaving the front door uh, completely wide open, got in his car, left, leaving the garage door completely open. He drove through the streets of Toronto, 23 kilometers, which is 14 miles, went to the home of his in-laws, Barbara Woods and Donald Woods, uh, and in the garage, he took out a tire iron, uh, got into their house with a key that uh, had been given to him by his in-laws. Went upstairs uh, to their bedroom. He nearly strangled his father-in-law, Donald Woods, uh, before he went to uh, his mother-in-law, Barbara Woods. Had taken a knife from the kitchen. Uh, he smashed her with a tire iron. She had brain, ble uh, brain bleeding, but he stabbed her six times with a kitchen knife and the stab through the heart killed her. He then went uh, to uh, the door, outside the door, the two doors of their teenage daughters and they reported later that he was grunting in a very loud way like an animal. And it was terrifying because then he stopped grunting and he started again. Fortunately, he did, not, he did not enter their room. He left the home, walked into a police station at 4.45 in the morning, and he said, I think I killed somebody. I don't know what happened. I saw the face of Barbara Woods. It looked very sad to me, but I don't know what happened. I think I did something terrible. The police made a very important observation. He had cut the tendons of all his fingers the flexor tendons. In the process of stabbing his mother-in-law and his father-in-law, the kitchen knife must have slipped through his fingers and he cut the flexor tendons. He showed no pain, he felt no pain. In the subsequent trial, that was very important evidence to indicate that he was not really with it, not awake. Because people, if they're awake, will have incredible pain after cutting basically 10 tendons of your hands. Now he was acquitted in the trial that began a year later, and this made Canadian legal history the first time the sleepwalking defense was successfully used in a murder case. It was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, which upheld the ruling. Uh, so this was a landmark case, and so very well documented one. Uh, but even his in-laws uh, used to refer to this gentleman, who was a big man. He was, a, a, if I recall, about 6'2", 6'3", about 230 pounds. Um, uh, but they call him the gentle giant uh, because he was very gentle with, with everyone. He was very nice. Um, and so uh, no aggressive tendencies. Uh, the other thing, incidentally, in this case that, that helped the acquittal uh, is there was no, uh, no one ever could find any motive for these actions. Um, they were on everyone's accounts on very good terms. Um, and so there's nothing really that made sense as to uh, why he would do this. Dr. Zadra's advice on how to avoid becoming a victim of parasomnia is very similar to the advice on how to avoid getting cancer or hit by a falling branch or lightning. Just luck out. 
just don't become a victim of the wild, unthinking, nearly malevolent universe. He did, however, identify a couple of risk factors. Sleep deprivation, whether it's chronic um, or acute, you know, you, you, you've done an all-nighter, what have you, can facilitate the occurrence of episodes uh, in, in predisposed individuals, and so can stress. And the reason is quite simple. Um, about 80% of sleepwalking episodes occur out of deep sleep. And when you are sleep deprived, the stage of sleep that will rebound, that will come back preferentially, is deep sleep. So you will have more of it and it will be more intense. And since this is the stage of sleep out of which these episodes occur, you have a better chance uh, of it happening. Uh, and stress, well, you know, stress affects all kinds of systems and all kinds of um uh, psychological processes, and for reasons we don't yet well understand, but have been fairly well documented, uh, can also facilitate the occurrence of sleepwalking. I felt like I was starting to understand the potential for my zombie army pretty well, as, as well as the nuances of parasomnia, but I had to ask, is there something messed up about Adam and people like him, aka, is there a genetic predisposition to this sort of thing? I think just being sleep deprived, new parents, in and of itself, will not turn you into a sleepwalker if you weren't one before. Uh, and so uh, we do know that about um, 70 to 80% of sleepwalkers, of chronic sleepwalkers in adults, um, have a genetic predisposition to be a sleepwalker. Uh, so, there, so there's a genetic basis. So most of them will have someone in their immediate or extended family uh, who's also known sleepwalker. Um, so you already need this makeup if you want. Now, I'm not a parasomniac. I'm not crazy. But I'm still terrible at making decisions in that hazy area between being asleep and being awake. And luckily, I'm not alone. Our last segment is about that. But first, an ad. Against Type was brought to you by the Lagunitas Brewing Company. And by brought to you, I mean they didn't give us a dime, but we drank a lot of Lagunitas while we were making the podcast. To say it wouldn't have been possible without their support is definitely not true, because we didn't get any money from them, but it did make the process of making the podcast a lot more enjoyable. So, in the event that anybody did ever want to pay us to say anything beneficial about their company, and we actually do use or support the company, it would probably go in this particular sequence with music a lot like this right under it. And now back to the show. Dan and I experienced a simultaneous internal dilemma, a sort of standoff with our better selves, one that we both lost. The memory of this dilemma left a lasting impression on me, but we haven't acknowledged it in the 14 years since it happened. I called him to discuss the incident. Hey man, what's up? He knew what I was talking about before I even asked. Can I guess what the story is? I feel like I know what it's going to be. I thought of this one because I thought it. It, it explores a certain kind of internal dilemmas that both of us face simultaneously. <laughs> then I already know that you're right. So. Okay. <laughs> wow. The reason actually for the trip was we were working on the cable access show, um, Smiling at Gunpoint. So we, we get up to, to Sleeping Bear. I don't remember whether we were too poor to afford a hotel or just too lazy and tired to drive home, but we ended up spending the night in Dan's car on the beach. Um, and we decide to sleep in the car. 
that morning, nature closed in on us. Half asleep, we both got a sense of creeping, possibly imminent doom. Anyway, during, during uh, the early morning, um, sun is rising. I wasn't quite coherent yet. The extreme wind. Whistling. Come out of nowhere. Howling. And start battering the car. Just buffeting the car with rain. Really, really, really intensely. I mean, it definitely sounded like a tornado. I was absolutely convinced in my semi-awake asleep state. There was no doubt in my mind. That a tornado, the car. It was at that point I decided to do what anyone else wouldn't do. I decided to lie still and consign myself to whatever happened, along with my best friend. This is a decision I can't imagine people will widely understand. I don't quite understand it. It never occurred to me that it might be morally wrong not to tell Dan that there was a tornado coming. Or maybe it did occur to me and I just didn't care. I'm not sure which is worse. Given the melancholic tone of this entire narrative, you might assume that we were both killed in a tornado. After all, I keep saying everything like this, and there's that music. We're both fine. In the morning, I decided to tell Dan that I had consigned him to death for the sake of a few extra moments of sleep. This would be especially awkward if you were the only sociopath in a friendship, but it turned out Dan had done the same thing. Um, the, so I was presented right then, of course, with, with a dilemma. Do I decide to frantically wake up, wake you up and say, oh my God, I think a tornado's hitting the car. We need to do something for the sake of our lives. <laughs> and I decided, fuck it. I'm tired. I'm just going to kind of sleep through this. And if we die, we die. Hey, mind if I interrupt? That's our producer, Steve. He wants to ask a few questions, and he thought the ideal time to do that would be in the middle of the segment, apparently, while I'm trying to cultivate sort of an atmosphere with the piano music and the fatalism and all that. Okay, go ahead, Steve. Okay, here it goes. So you both made an admittedly bad decision, but I'm not sure if that makes you sociopaths. I mean, maybe you were just half asleep and not thinking straight. I think that that's definitely true, but I would say... Even our most irrational decisions are still built on a framework of experience or a framework of personality. So people often say, oh, I was really drunk, so I did thing X that I would never normally do. And that's true. I I totally get that. But have you ever been so drunk that you would make out with your mom? (laughs) I've been really drunk, and I can say with absolute certainty that I would never make out with my mom. Hi, mom. I don't even think I would make out with most people's moms, like my friends' moms, if I were drunk, because I have like an overall, uh, my life experience and my personality architecture are not such that they would let that idea have access, even if I were really drunk. Just like the really drunk, they might fight someone at a bar, but they wouldn't throw themselves off of a cliff for no reason, right? Like you would have to have some sort of motivation to kill yourself to begin with. So I just feel like, the idea that being half asleep, if we can equate that on some level to being drunk or any other sort of semi-rational state that you exist in, I think that you're still going to make decisions that exist somewhere inside you. You know, you wouldn't get really drunk or really sleepy and go start torturing animals or make a nail bomb and send it to somebody unless that's something that you already enjoy. I see what you're saying, but remember Ken Parks? He had a great relationship with his mother-in-law before he killed her. What I'm saying is, maybe that you, that decided not to do anything about that tornado, maybe that wasn't actually, well, you. 
Actually, Dan and I talked about a lot of this on the phone. I have some thoughts on this. I, I think there's two main reasons that I didn't do anything. The first was as being, I guess I would have been 20, and having at that point not experienced, not having experienced or even secondhand, thirdhand experience, anything really tragic or horrific in my life, I don't know that I really believed that people died in tornadoes. Yeah, you know, I, I want to interject and say I had this sort of same conviction of this specialness, which sounds so silly to try to frame it this way, but it's just something you know in your bones, that interesting people who are destined for, if not great things, then moderate things, simply don't die in such a mundane, silly way. And all the people that do die in those ways are sort of supernumerary people. They're, they're NPCs or they're extras or something. Yeah. And, and it's not like you consciously really think this, or at least I didn't. It was just sort of an understanding I had about the way reality works. Yeah, that, that's kind of it. Like, that's not how the story goes. And, and I think I felt that way with a, with a lot of things. I mean, it could be part of the idea that, you know, the, the, the human brain isn't really fully formed until it's like 25. <laughs> That would explain the first half of my dating career pretty easily. I feel like it explains, I think my life, like especially ages about 20 through 25, were just a series of really stupid decisions where um, I didn't really think about consequences. And I, and I feel that that would be an example where I just, the actual consequence of, of being injured or killed in a tornado and of, and of, and of someone else's life, I mean, here, I mean, whatever that that I'm not caring about myself, but you're next to me. You're my friend, and I'm. But but I'm. That's how convinced I am that like these things don't really happen. So that that to me is factor one, which is really the I suppose the main factor. But I, I would say that the second factor is this general nihilism that I I think I lived in a general state of nihilism. Um, at that point in, in my life. Definitely. And not even not even a cool, or rather not actually cool, sort of postured nihilism. I mean, certainly there was that too, especially for me, I think. But having maybe what would have been a traditional set of belief structures or societal uh, institutions that had brought me comfort growing up all seemed to dissolve the more educated I got. And so the idea that nothing mattered seemed so important empirically obvious that there is simply no refuting it any longer. And so I'm not saying that I was able to do this sort of moral and existential calculus at this moment, right. but the idea that I would die essentially painlessly instantly uh, while while coming out of a nice, well, actually it wasn't nice, it was a terrible sleep in the car, didn't seem so bad. It's just, And it's not like that's a rational decision, but at that moment it just didn't seem so bad. It's easy to say that the sleep-deprived specters we all become in desperate hours are not us. It's tempting to cast ourselves as the hosts for the demons and viruses of our worst selves. It's easy to say a certain decision I've made is the property of some archived version of me, a naive young guy much less familiar with loss. If the decisions we make when we're half asleep, or drunk, or raging, or just young, don't belong to us, to whom do they belong? We can't just disown them. Consequence is Darwinian. Our lives are built on these decisions. Sometimes it's like living in a house full of furniture you can't remember buying. Consequence doesn't care about our feelings or complex self-assessments or who we really are. 
I think our only chance at eking out a life of dignity and meaning in the amoral landscape of cause and effect is to own our whole selves, to adopt the person you were, no matter how hideous, and make that person your own. This episode was edited, conceived, directed, narrated, resurrected, abandoned, resurrected again, matriculated, gerrymandered, and ultimately produced by Steve Kemsley and Greg T. John. A very special thanks to Dr. Antonio Zadra, as well as Adam and Jules for allowing their nightmare of a life to become fodder for your entertainment for a few brief minutes. If you like Against Type, make sure that you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher. I don't know why I'm mentioning Stitcher. I don't even know what that is. People talk about it all the time. If you liked this episode of Against Type... Make sure that you subscribe and also rate us on iTunes. And just to be clear, we don't want you to rate us honestly, quote-unquote. The iTunes rating system isn't... I don't have a lot going for me, and this is going to be my life's work. And you can judge that and think it's pathetic if you want to. We need you to rate us five stars or don't rate us at all. Just subscribe. (laughs) I honestly don't know how to do this straight. What do you do?